Well, it is a joy to be back with you this morning on the Lord's Day to worship our Heavenly Father. And just for the record, uh, sometimes God just blesses you in the morning. Uh, This morning, as I was getting ready for church, I was actually singing in my mind, uh, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. And I hadn't heard that song in months. I mean, it had never crossed my mind. And then, of course, that's the first song that we've seen today. So I don't know if you guys can relate to that or not, but... You just you come to church and you just know it's it's going to be a great time of corporate worship. You, you just feel refreshed. You feel uh, just happy to be in the presence of God and the presence of His people. So I, I hope that's the testimony of your heart this morning. It certainly is mine. Um, but I'm excited to, to get back in our study of the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles, please open those Bibles up back to where we left off from our time together last week. John chapter 1. This is going to be part two of the study that we began last week in those verses from 35 on to the end of the chapter, which is verse 51. John chapter 1, verses 35 to 51. That's going to be what we read together for our scripture reading. But as I mentioned last week, uh, this week we're going to focus primarily on what John writes in verses 43 to 51 as we seek to conclude this section in his gospel and really this narrative as a whole that began back in verse 19 and, and carries on to the end of the chapter. So John chapter 1 verses 35 to 51 for our scripture reading and we'll be focusing primarily on verses 43 to 51. So I will be reading our text out of the New American Standard Bible. You please feel free to follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read. Beginning in verse 35. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to Jesus, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And Jesus said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. And the next day, verse 43, the next day, Jesus purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to Jesus, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the living God. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts this morning. During a sermon preached in 1865, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great prince of preaching, noted that the Gospel of John is bookended by two loving invitations. Two loving invitations that can be seen at the very beginning of the Gospel of John and at the very end of the Gospel of John, according to Charles Haddon Spurgeon. According to Spurgeon, the first loving invitation that we see in the Gospel of John is presented in chapter 1, verse, 29, or verse 39. Rather. John 1, 39 is the first loving invitation presented in the Gospel of John. And at the very end, in John chapter 21 and verse 12, we find the second. As we prepare to embark upon this second installment of the narrative that began in verse 35 and carries on to the end of the first chapter of John's Gospel, I want to share with you just by way of introduction to help set our minds on what we're going to be considering today from God's Word, I want to share with you a a portion of that sermon from Spurgeon in which he sets forth before us the two loving invitations that, that really serve as bookends to this glorious gospel message found according to John in his gospel record. So we're going to see the gospel, uh, the, the gospel of John bookended by two loving invitations according to uh, Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preaching. Notice what he writes. Here's a direct quote. He says, At the very beginning and at the very end of John's gospel, we see a progression that we would all do well to understand. He's, he's saying, if you want to understand the Gospel of John, pay careful attention to this observation that can be seen right at the beginning of its uh, Gospel and right at the end of the Gospel. Notice what Spurgeon says. He says, at the very beginning of John's Gospel, Jesus invites men to come and see. This invitation is for babes in grace. But at the end of John's Gospel, Jesus invites men to come and dine. This invitation is for strong believers in grace. We must notice the order, says Spurgeon. Come and see is the beginning of spiritual life as it is the beginning of the Gospel. And the beginning of this Gospel according to John. But come and dine, says Spurgeon is the high after-privilege of spiritual life, and it's the blessed result of it. Therefore, it must not be a surprise to discover Jesus beginning His interactions with sinful man by proclaiming, Come and see. It is Christ's plea for sinners to come and see that at the heart of the Gospel's cry is this free and loving invitation. This plea, says Spurgeon, has nothing to conceal. It wears no mask. It has no most holy place into which entrance is forbidden. The way into it is open to all who are willing to come by faith. Come and see, proclaims the Lord Jesus Christ to needy and perishing sinners. Indeed, Spurgeon concludes in that sermon preached roughly 160 years ago. He says, indeed, open and above board in all its doings, the truth as it is in Jesus Christ cries out to every hearer, come and see. End quote. 
My friends, it's my deepest prayer that by the conclusion of our time together this morning, every person who's here today will be in a place where they can say before the living God, they have come and seen Jesus Christ in all of His glory and all of His excellency. That, that like John the Baptist, like Andrew, like Peter, like Philip, like Nathaniel, that every person here today at Lifeway Baptist Church will have received spiritual sight from the Lord Jesus Christ. That you will have come and seen Him for who He is and all that He offers to you. And that at the end of your Christian life, as you progress in sanctification, as you become more spiritually mature, there will be that great day when you reside in glory with Christ, the holy angels, and all the redeemed from human history. And you'll hear the words, come and dine. Come and dine with me. Well, we now come to our seventh study in the opening chapter of John's Gospel. And given the fact that seven is the number of completion, for those of you who are into numerology, I think it's only fitting that this is the final message that we will be devoting on reflecting on what John writes here in chapter one. As we've mentioned up to this point in our study of the Gospel of John, the, the first chapter of John's Gospel, there's two primary sections. So if you want to look at John chapter 1 as a whole and try to get an idea of how it fits together, there's two main sections that can be found in that opening chapter. Section 1, otherwise known as the prologue, or the introduction to John's Gospel. It starts, obviously, at the very beginning in verse 1, and it ends at verse 18. So the introduction, the prologue to John's Gospel first 18 verses of that chapter. And the purpose of that preliminary section, as with any introduction that we find today, if you read a book, a magazine, a newspaper article, typically the introduction, it's going to set forth what is going to be developed throughout the remainder of that literary work. And that's exactly what John does. He says at the very end in John 20 verse 31 that he writes everything in this gospel to show that Jesus is the Son of God and that believing you may have life in his name. That's the main point of John's Gospel. Well, the first 18 verses literally send the reader on a springboard into why Jesus Christ is God. That's really at the heart of the first 18 verses. Jesus is divine. He is the Son of God. And that believing in Him, book ended at the very end of John's Gospel and has started at the very beginning, that trusting in Jesus, you will have life in His name. That's the first section in chapter 1. We covered that at great length. We devoted three messages to those 18 verses. And then we transition into that second section of the opening chapter of John's Gospel. Starts in verse 19, goes all the way to the end of chapter 1. And in that section, if we could summarize verses 1 to 18 as Jesus is God, that the introduction, the prologue, it's Jesus is God. Well, the, the second section of John's Gospel could be summarized as Jesus' preparation for ministry. So, so we, we get an introduction to the deity of Christ, and building off of that reality, John, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, now let me give you the broader context of what Jesus did in preparation for coming on the scene to showcase His divine nature and His ability to save sinners throughout the totality of of his earthly ministry. And that's what we find recorded in this gospel. Now, what's the, what's the context? Where are we at in the story in John's gospel? Where are we at in the second section of this book? 
Well, we noted uh, from our previous study, particularly uh, regarding the time and the location, this was a long, long time ago uh, in a place far, far away. If you're a Star Wars fan like I am, uh, you can catch the reference there. The, the scene is between the years of 26 and 27 AD. We're roughly 7,000 miles away from Edna, Texas. And what we find here is Jesus Christ coming onto the scene, and John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of the Messiah. He was prophesied about in the Old Testament that he would be the forerunner of the Messiah in the fullness of time when he came. And he proclaims to his followers, Behold, the Lamb of God. Behold, the Messiah is here. So verses 19 to 34 are completely devoted to seeing the transition from John the Baptist's role in the nation of Israel. John the Baptist's purpose and function as the forerunner to the Messiah. And then as soon as you hit verse 35, there's a shift that takes place. And we titled that shift, that, that I guess you could say halfway point in the second section, as come and see. Verse 35 to 51, it's all about coming and seeing Jesus Christ for who He is, namely everything that John the Baptist was pointing ahead to, everything that the nation of Israel had been longing for for centuries. And we've, we've noted that the theme, again, in keeping with this idea of coming and seeing Jesus Christ, really the theological theme embedded in these verses is this. Spiritual sight comes exclusively through Jesus Christ. You and I, the Bible says, in texts like Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 18, Titus 3, 3, passages like that show us that you and I are born into this world spiritually blind. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says that the God of this age, Satan, he, he has, as it were, veiled our eyes. We've been blinded by Satan, and we've been obviously blinded by her own sin. In Jesus Christ, my friends, as set forth before us from verse 35 to 51 of John's Gospel, Jesus Christ is the sole remedy provided by God to help you and I see ourselves and see this world and see God Himself as we should do so. And we looked last week when we studied verse uh, 35 to 42. We saw three firsthand testimonies from John as to how Jesus Christ provides spiritual sight to needy and perishing sinners like you and me. And today we're going to look at the, the next three firsthand testimonies. We're going to look at verses 43 to 51, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week in the narrative. And we're going to see three powerful firsthand testimonies as to how Jesus provides us sinners. With spiritual sight. Let me give you those final three first-hand testimonies. This will also be our outline for today's lesson. And, and then we'll work our way through the text together. So, um, testimony number one, or four, in, in keeping with where we left off last week. Verses 43 to 46. We could summarize those verses as saying, Come and see, Jesus is the awaited one. For sinners, and like a good Baptist, if you if you kept up uh, with our lesson last week, I, I try to keep it simple by using alliteration and, and, and keeping the words similar. So uh, hopefully you can appreciate that if you're taking notes. So come and see, Jesus is the awaited one for sinners. Verse forty three to forty six. Second or fifthly, keeping up with where we left off last week, verse forty seven to forty eight. Jesus is the advocate for sinners. Come and see, Jesus is the advocate. For sinners. 
And then lastly, verse 49 to 51, wrapping up the first chapter of John's Gospel. And the third testimony we're going to look at today in the sixth in keeping with this section. Jesus is the answer for sinners. Come and see, Jesus is the answer for sinners as declared in verses 49 to 51. So that's our outline for this morning. Let's now go back to the text. Let's start back in verse 43. We're going to reread verses 43 to 46 together. And in doing so, my prayer is that we will be able to come and see that Jesus is the awaited one for sinners. Jesus as the awaited one for sinners in verses 43 to 46. Notice those verses again with me in your copy of God's Word. The narrative says, The next day Jesus purposed to go into Galilee. And he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? The irony of that statement. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Well, as I mentioned during our previous lesson, and and I kind of gave you a foretaste in in setting the scene for us in the narrative. uh, Really, if you look at verse 19 to 51, we have a four-day chronological uh, summary of, of, of a narrative or a story unfolding for us. Okay, So if you were to look at verse 19 to 51, everything that happens there takes place over the span of four chronological days. The events documented on day one span from verse 19 to verse 28. The events that are described taking place on day two span from verse 29 to verse 34. The events that we discussed last week all took place on the third day of this chronological narrative. And that was from verses 35 to 42. So we're on the fourth and final day in this narrative that John puts for us right here in chapter 1. It's going to go from verse 43 to 51. So in this fourth day, here's what's going on. Jesus, he's, he's now heading north upwards from Bethany to the region of Galilee, he's working, if you, if you had a map, um, I'm, I'm not a big geography guy, that was one of my least favorite subjects when I was in school, but if you had a, a map behind me, if you have a map in your Bible, you'll notice they're at the pretty much the southernmost part of the land of Israel at this time. And, and Jesus is going to begin working his way north. And this is where ultimately Jesus spent the majority of his time growing up, in the region of Galilee. Okay? It's also in the region of Galilee, by the time we get to John chapter 2 and you start uh, seeing uh, what Alan is going to teach us during our time together next week, it was in John chapter 2, in that northernmost part of the land of Israel, that Jesus would perform his first public miracle. His first public miracle, of course, was turning water into wine at the wedding of Cana. So this is all leading up to what we're going to see in John chapter 2. Jesus is leaving the southernmost part of the nation of Israel. He's heading north. And as he begins, it wouldn't have been long after he began his journey north, that that Jesus runs into a man by the name of Philip. And as we see from verse 44, it just so happens in God's providence, in his wisdom, Philip was from Bethsaida, which just so happened to be the same city where Andrew and Peter were from. 
And although we don't know from the text if Andrew and Peter had previously uh, previously spoken to um, Philip before they have this encounter that we find in this portion of the narrative, we don't know what's going on behind the scenes. But nevertheless, it's interesting to note that these three men likely knew one another before they all came to faith in Christ, before they came to spiritual sight in Jesus Christ. These three men knew one another, and in God's kindness, they would be serving together as some of Christ's apostles. And by the time we reach verse 45, just like we saw last week, we see a domino effect. Jesus has an encounter with Philip. Philip's got to go and talk to Nathaniel and share all the details about his encounter. We saw it with, with Andrew and the other disciple that's unnamed in our study last week. They have this encounter with Jesus on the basis of John the Baptist's testimony, and lo and behold... Andrew goes to his brother Peter. He says, I just had this incredible encounter. The Messiah is here. And there's no doubt in our minds that potentially, Philip knowing Andrew and Peter, something like that could have happened. We don't, again, we don't see it from the text, but it's just interesting that these three men come from the same place. There's no doubt they would have had at least some familiarity with one another. And I think it's a testimony that we can see, at least implicitly in the text, that if we're willing to be bold and if we're willing to share our testimony with those in our lives, family members, friends, co-workers, neighbors, God can do remarkable work if we're just willing to share. And I think we see that clearly in the text. There is a domino effect. One person has an incredible encounter with God, and then you just see over and over and over again other people experiencing something similar. That should motivate us to share our faith with those in our lives. So, the two disciples who were granted spiritual sight in verse 37, they informed Simon Peter about their faith in verse 41. By verses 43 and 44, which is less than 24 hours after Peter comes to faith, Andrew, Peter, they they, they know Philip. They have a relationship with him. They might have talked to Philip. And Philip now is seen as having an encounter with Jesus. Philip gets granted spiritual sight. And then verse 45 comes around. Philip comes to Nathanael. And Philip goes to Nathanael. He says, Nathanael, you're not going to believe this. The one who Moses and the whole law and all the prophets, this one, we found him. If I could say it in 21st century vernacular, we found the awaited one. We found the one we've been waiting for. Essentially, I would argue that what we find in verse 45, it's, it's really in seed form what Paul develops at greater length in 2 Corinthians 1.20. Flip over there in your Bibles. If you want to understand how to read the Old Testament by the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 1.20 is crucial. So when, when we think about this idea of how Moses and the law and all the prophets were, were pointing ahead to Jesus, if we think about this idea of Jesus being awaited in the Old Testament, this text in 2 Corinthians 1.20 It gives us additional clarification as to the significance behind the statement we find in verse 45. Notice what Paul writes in that text. He says, For as many as the promises of God are, in Christ they are yes. Therefore, through Christ also is our amen to the glory of God through us. Okay, so that passage And exactly what we find written in verse 45 on the basis of Philip's testimony about Jesus, what those texts are saying when taken in conjunction with one another is that Jesus Christ is at the heart and soul and center of Old Testament revelation. 
when we consider the law of Moses, when we consider the historical writings of Old Covenant Israel, when you read the Psalms, when you read the Proverbs, when you read the prophets, Jesus Christ permeates all of it. He's the goal of all of it. He is the one to whom all of it is foreshadowing and pointing forward to. Because Jesus is the Messiah, because He's the Son of God, and because He was prophesied to come in the fullness of times, it would only make sense that if you read the Old Testament, you'll see shadows and prophecies and pictures and allusions to Him. So when He comes on the scene here in either the year 26 or 27 A.D., These Jewish men, they would have been overwhelmed with joy. They wouldn't have been able to contain themselves. That's why we saw from verse 37 on to verse 45, time and time again, man has an encounter with Jesus. This is the one we've been reading about. This is the one who our forefathers, my great, 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 great grandfather, he was looking forward to this man coming and now he's here. He's here. This should excite us. My friends, this should help us be motivated to study the Old Testament. And just for your benefit, I've shared this before in a different context, but I felt led to do this today. If you want to get to the heart of what Philip's after in verse 45, if you want to get to the crux of what Paul's after in 2 Corinthians 1.20, I want to show you in the handouts that you were provided with today just a small glimpse into what those passages are trying to communicate. In that handout, you'll notice that there is just one example from each of the 39 books of the Old Testament. Just one example of a clear prophecy or allusion to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who was to come in the fullness of time in the new covenant era. So as we look through this handout, I want to read it together. I want you to, I don't want I don't want you just to, to take the hand out and say, yeah, that, that's great, and, and you never look at it. I actually want us to take the time to read through those together. I think it'll be valuable. I think it serves well what Philip is saying in verse 45, and of course what Paul says uh, in 2 Corinthians 1.20. So let's read through this list together on your own time if you're looking for a good Bible study uh, to have, uh, or just uh, daily, you want to work through a couple of those references a day. This could really be of great edification to you, and I think it'll motivate you to study the Old Testament for yourself at greater length. So, Jesus as the awaited one for sinners, how is this portrayed in the Old Testament? Well, in Genesis, Jesus is the promised seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head. In Exodus, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb who would be sacrificed for his people. In Leviticus, Jesus is the fulfillment of the scapegoat who would bear the sin of His people on the cross. In Numbers, Jesus is the fulfillment of the bronze serpent that was lifted up as a means of satisfying the wrath of God against sin. In Deuteronomy, Jesus is the prophet greater than Moses who God raised up in the fullness of time. In Joshua, Jesus was there as the commander of the Lord's army, the angel of the Lord. In Judges, Jesus was also there as the angel of the Lord. He was encouraging the leaders of Israel to press on in faithfulness to their calling. In Ruth, Jesus is the one who was ultimately foreshadowed as being the redeemer, the kinsman redeemer of the inheritance of his people. He would bring forth the redemption and salvation of the people of Israel. He would gift them with eternal inheritance through his work in his earthly life. In 1 Samuel, 
Jesus is prophesied as the horn of salvation. That horn of salvation that God would eventually raise up for His people. Not just for the nation of Israel, but also for the whole world. In 2 Samuel, Jesus is the prophesied son of David. And as the son of David, he would be both David's son and David's Lord. He would be appointed to rule as the king of Israel and, of course, the king of the universe. In 1 Kings, Jesus is the answer to the question that went unanswered for centuries. But will God indeed indwell on the earth? In 2 Kings, Jesus is the one who would be similar to Elijah, who multiplied loaves of bread during his ministry. In 1 Chronicles, Jesus is the promised son of David whose kingdom would last forever. In 2 Chronicles, Jesus was prophesied as the one who would be greater than Solomon in his wisdom. Solomon being the wisest of all Old Testament kings. Jesus as the wisdom of God. Perfect in his infinite knowledge. In Ezra, We find that the nation of Israel is preserved in order to safeguard the lineage from which Jesus would come. My friends, anytime you read a genealogy in the Old Testament, don't just skip over that. Those names, those people, they had a purpose. They had a story. And ultimately, those people would bring forth the Messiah in the fullness of time. Those lists of names matter. In Nehemiah... Nehemiah foreshadows Jesus cleansing the temple during his earthly ministry. You're going to see that shortly in our study of the Gospel of John in a few weeks from now, probably. In Esther, Jesus was typified by Mordecai's exaltation. In other words, Jesus was reflected, he was pictured, he was was ultimately the fulfillment of Mordecai being exalted from a position of a persecuted Jew to a position of the highest level of honor in the kingdom. In the book of Job, Jesus is prophesied as the living Redeemer who would stand on the earth. Kind of in keeping with that question, 1 Kings, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives and that He will stand on the earth. Jesus is one and the same fulfillment. In the Psalms, I mean, we could go to all kinds of Psalms that ultimately portray Jesus and look to Him in the future. But in Psalm 22, literally written close to a thousand years before Jesus came. Crucifixion didn't even exist in those days. And Jesus pictured as the fulfillment of the one whose hands and His feet would be pierced through in crucifixion. In Proverbs, Jesus, He's not just wise, but He's literally the personification of the wisdom being described. The Proverbs is the book of wisdom. Jesus is wisdom itself. Ecclesiastes. We find this, this picture of a good shepherd who teaches people truth. And when Jesus applies the language of good shepherd, He's not only borrowing from David in Psalm 23, There's no question in my mind at least, and I would imagine in the first century Jews' mind, he's also making reference here to Ecclesiastes. Jesus is the good shepherd. In the Song of Solomon, kind of a weird book for Christians to read and study, but my friends, Jesus' love for His church is greater and more pure and more perfect than Solomon's love for His bride. You see this beautiful description of marital love and bliss in the Song of Solomon in a more pure and holy and excellent way. That's how Jesus loves His church. It's intimate, it's pure, it's perfect, it's unwavering, it's eternal. In Isaiah, 
Jesus was prophesied to be the one to take away the believer's sin. He would be the one who would bear the penalty of God's wrath in the place of sinners. And Jeremiah, Jesus was prophesied to be the branch that would spring up from the line of David. In Lamentations, Jesus is the personification of one who would be in tears over Jerusalem's spiritual condition. Jesus, right before he goes to the cross at the end of Matthew 23, knowing that in basically 35 years or so, the entirety of that city would be plundered by the Romans. And he cries, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Oh, how I wish I could gather you up like a hen gathers up her chicks, but you would not come. In Ezekiel, Jesus is the prophesied shepherd who would feed the people of Israel both physically and spiritually. In Daniel, Jesus was the one prophesied to arrive as the king of Israel on the exact day that he did. Go read Daniel 9, verses 27 to 29. You will, or I guess, excuse me, verses 24 to 27. Go read Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27. You will see clearly the Jews knew when the Messiah was coming. There was a specific time frame that he had to come, and Jesus fulfilled that time frame perfectly. In Hosea, Jesus is the one who would be the true Son of God that was brought out of Egypt. In Joel, Jesus would be the one name that all people could cry out for salvation. In Amos, Jesus prophesied to arrive when the tabernacle of David was repaired after the exile. In Obadiah, Jesus is the personification of the one who would serve as the ruler over the kingdom of God. In Jonah, just as Jonah was in the fish for three days and three nights, so also was Jesus in the tomb for three days and three nights after his crucifixion. He's a greater Jonah. He's the fulfillment of that whole book. In Micah, the birthplace of Jesus was prophesied explicitly. In Nahum, the redemption secured by Jesus over the enemy, both Satan and death, is the good news that we are to take to all sinners. In Habakkuk, the, the, the heart and soul of the gospel that sinners are justified by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Cited in the book of Romans, right at the beginning, the book of Romans is all about the gospel. And we find that same gospel being championed by Habakkuk. The gospel, in other words, the gospel was believed in the Old Testament by Israelites. It's the same gospel we believe. We just see more clearly in light of Christ's coming. In Zephaniah, Jesus is the prophesied king who would dwell in the midst of his people while reigning on the earth. In Haggai, Jesus was a descendant of Zerubbabel, fulfilling a key Old Testament prophecy concerning the Messiah. In Zechariah, Jesus was prophesied to arrive on a donkey. In Malachi, last but not least, we made it through all 39 books, John the Baptist. He was prophesied to serve as a forerunner to the earthly ministry of the Messiah, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, have you seen today? Jesus is the awaited one for sinners. And does that not motivate you? When we go through our year through reading of the Bible and and you're tempted to skip Leviticus and some of the minor prophets that are just a little bit weird for us living in the 21st century, does this not motivate you to dive into those Old Testament scriptures and to see the one who is the fulfillment of all of it? To to, to see Christ. 
foreshadowed in the Old Testament, prophesied in the Old Testament, predicted in the Old Testament, but we, in light of the New Testament, in light of the fullness of times, in light of the person work of Jesus Christ in that first century some 2,000 years ago, unlike those who looked ahead in anticipation, we look back and we have confidence and we have joy knowing that it was all fulfilled in Christ. He's at the center of it all, my friends. Study your Old Testament. See Jesus as the awaited one for sinners. But as we transition now into the next section of the narrative, look at verse 46 again. Remember who, who's hearing this now, okay? Everything that I just gave you, that, that, that's a 30,000-foot fly over the Old Testament. It would have been child's play for these Jews in the first century, would have had most of the Old Testament committed to memory, or at least would have been very familiar with it. Even the non-clergy, even the non-Pharisees and Sadducees, they had a great, robust knowledge and understanding of the Old Testament. So everything I just gave you, if, if, if uh, Nathaniel, who we're talking about here, was sitting right there in that chair, it's a, oh, oh yeah, like Messiah, he's going to do all those things and more. I know my Old Testament better than you do, preacher. Uh, but, but isn't it fascinating? He has all this head knowledge. He knows the Messiah is going to do all these things. And in verse 46, Nathaniel says, can you hear the sarcasm dripping from his lips? Can any good thing come from Nazareth? You mean to tell me that the Messiah, the awaited one, he's from Nazareth? You're out of your mind, Philip. And your buddies from Bethsaida, I don't know if they put the water up there, but you guys have lost your mind. Nothing good coming from Nazareth. Now, um, to, to understand why Nathaniel would have had this initial knee-jerk reaction to the testimony of Philip, um, I look to Colin Cruz and his commentary. I think it's helpful because we're 2,000 years removed from these events. So we're, we're not only removed by time, we're also removed by culture. So it's, it's important to make sure we have a little bit of understanding of, of how Nathaniel would have responded to this idea of a guy coming from Nazareth laying claim to the title of Messiah. So I want to share with you a, a brief excerpt from Cruz's commentary, and then we'll move on in our narrative to the next section. Cruz commenting on Philip's response or excuse me, Nathaniel's response to Philip's testimony. He says this. He says, When Nathaniel heard that Jesus was from Nazareth, he was beside himself. Nazareth, for first century Jews, was considered an insignificant place and one that appears in none of the prophecies concerning the Messiah. Therefore, Nathaniel was initially unwilling to accept Philip's testimony. However, as Andrew said earlier to Simon Peter, Philip now says to Nathaniel, come and see, end quote. And that brings us now to the second section in our narrative where we're picking up in this story. We're going to transition now from uh, verse 46 into verses 47 to 48 for that second section in our narrative that I have entitled, Come and See, Jesus is the Advocate for Sinners. Come and see, Jesus is the advocate for sinners. Verses 47 and 48. Notice those verses again with me in your copy of Scripture. Verse 47. It says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, and just picture this, this was not a quiet declaration. He sees him from afar and he says, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel says to Jesus in response to that, you can only imagine what he would have been thinking. How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, 
When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, there's, there's something I want to note by way of preface before we really dive into these verses. Isn't it interesting that despite being skeptical about the identity of Jesus, Nathaniel nevertheless accepted Philip's offer to come and see Jesus for himself? And, and, and what does Nathaniel do? Not only is he willing to go, he, he's willing to go explore and investigate who Jesus is, whether or not Philip's claim is true, but Nathaniel... He didn't try to change anything about himself. He comes exactly as he is to come and see Jesus for himself. He doesn't try to hide his skepticism. He, he doesn't try to pretend that he had a different perception of Jesus than he initially had. Although he was an unbeliever at this point, although he was spiritually blind at this point in the narrative, Nathaniel was an authentic man and Jesus commends him for that. He says, you're an Israelite in who there's no deceit. You're not like those Pharisees and Sadducees. You don't play the game of religion. You're not a hypocrite. You don't try to put on an external facade of righteousness to fool those around you. You're authentic. You're genuine. And my friends, if someone is to be saved, they must get to the point where they're honest with themselves about where they are spiritually. My friends, Jesus does not delight in hypocritical religious expression. He, he doesn't delight in those who try to play the game in order to appease friends or family members or the expectations of their surrounding culture. Jesus desires, first and foremost, who's a sinner that's able to be saved? It's one who is willing to soberly address who they are before the living God. And it doesn't give an unbeliever a justification for their unbelief. But my friends, no sinner will ever be saved until they first come to the point of recognizing, you know what? I'm not a Christian. I don't understand the significance about this Jesus. But I want to know more. I hear the testimony of lives changed. I hear that Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. I've seen lives transformed. I've, I've read of historical accounts of men and women used by God. I need to learn more about this. I, I need to consider soberly and honestly and authentically my spirituality before God. And maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you've been in church your whole life. But you just played the game. You go to church because your parents or your spouse makes you go. When you're at church, your mind's anywhere but here. You think, I'll go to heaven, I'm a decent person, I'll check the right boxes, I'll get baptized, I'll say the sinner's prayer, I'll even give money, I'll invite people into my home, I'll be involved in trunk or treat, I'll do all the right stuff. But my friend, if you haven't ever soberly addressed your spirituality before the living God, you're no different than the Pharisees or the Sadducees. They had it down to a T. I know how to... I know how to fool everybody. I know how to play this game with perfection. I can say the right words. I can parrot the right phrases. I can dress the part. I hang out with the right people. I'm part of the right family. We need more Nathaniels, friends. And we, as Christians, we need to come in love and with grace to those in our lives who very well may be playing the game of religion. 
Let them know, say, you know what? You have to first honestly address your spirituality before God if you're going to come to a position of being saved. It's not about do's and don'ts. Those are important. Those flow from the root of faith. It's not about your family. It's not about what church you go to. It's not about how much money you give. It's about coming to God as you are, honestly. And then notice what happens when a sinner does that. Notice what happens to Nathaniel. Despite his initial skepticism, Jesus, he sees a sinner willing to humble himself. He sees a sinner willing to come to him as he is, willing to come and see, as it were, whether or not Jesus was who Philip claimed him to be. And guess what? He finds an advocate in Jesus. Did you catch that? Nathaniel, a spiritually blind sinner, willing just to come and see Jesus with humility and with sobriety of thinking. He goes to Jesus. Jesus commends him for his willingness to humble himself. And then Nathaniel finds an advocate in Christ. Jesus knew, my friends, as the God-man, Jesus knew that Nathaniel was given to him by the Father in order to be saved from his sin and serve as one of his apostles. And Jesus promises, if you will come to me, if you want to come and see me for yourself, if you want to come and humble yourself to the point of soberly and authentically recognizing your status before a holy God, I'm never going to cast you out. You have an advocate in me. Notice what Jesus says to Nathaniel in verse 48. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And this is the nature of salvation. Before Philip exhorted Nathaniel to come and see Jesus for himself, before Nathaniel sought after Jesus to investigate the truthfulness of Philip's testimony, Jesus was already working on his heart. Jesus had already set his gaze upon Nathaniel. Nathaniel had an advocate in Jesus before he even received Jesus as his Lord and Savior. He was spiritually blind. He was spiritually dead. And yet he had an advocate in Christ. And if you're a Christian here today, you know exactly what I'm talking about. None of us who are in Christ, we may have played the game of religion. We may have looked the part. We, we, we may have been able to parrot Right answers to Bible questions. We might have given money to the church. We might have gone to FCA when we were in school. But we weren't seeking God genuinely from the heart. We know that from Scripture. I quoted some Scriptures earlier. Go read Romans 3, 10 and 12. No one is righteous, not one. No one seeks for God. Naturally, in, in a position of being spiritually blind and spiritually dead, you don't want anything to do with God. And my friends... Even when we were in that state, just like Nathaniel, Jesus, he sets his gaze upon his own. And he says, I saw you. You belong to me. And I'm never going to let you escape my notice. I won't let you get away from me. You are mine. And when you come to that position of humbling yourself before me, I will welcome you in. You came and saw, you can come and dine with me someday. You will be mine. If you're here today and you're a Christian, you're only in Christ because Jesus saw you and he pursued you to the uttermost. It's not because you did good works. It's not because you're any better than non-believers. 
There was nothing you or I could offer to God that he didn't already have. He saved you and he saved me in spite of ourselves. He saved us because he saw us. He plucked us out of a sin-cursed world. And in an act of sovereign grace, He makes us an adopted son or daughter. And He lavishes us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, both now and for eternity future. Two of my favorite passages that I think really confirm this reality, found later on in the Gospel of John. You could spend your whole life studying this portion of John's Gospel. It's in John 17. Flip over there with me if you want. John 17 known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And I just want to quote from two passages. Uh, the first is in John 17, 6. And the second is John 17, verses 24 to 26. And when I read these passages to you, I don't care how long you've been in church. I don't care whether you're a Christian or non-Christian. We can talk theology and how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility works together. I want you, just for this moment, I want you to read these verses with me and I want you to substitute your name for they and for them. When I read the words they and them, you say your name in that place. Okay? Let let this sink into your soul. And especially if you're a Christian here, if you know you're in Christ today, it's 100% true of you. But if you're not here Or if you are here and you're not in Christ, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, here's my plea, just like what happened with Nathaniel. Notice the sweetness and the kindness and the willingness of Christ to save your soul. If you would simply trust in Jesus, He will be your advocate. So when you read these verses with me from John 17... This can be true for you today if you're willing to bow your knee to Christ. On a personal level, like Nathaniel, we're going to read these verses. You're going to see some incredible truths. Think about this. If you're in Christ, if you're willing to submit to his lordship by faith, you can know without a shadow of a doubt you had an advocate in Jesus from eternity past. You had an advocate in Jesus during the first century through his life and his death and his resurrection. If you're willing to come to Christ by faith, you'll have an advocate at that moment because God, the Holy Spirit, will come and indwell you and transform you from a state of spiritually blind and spiritually dead to spiritually alive. You'll have an advocate for the rest of your earthly life. And when you stand before your Creator, which we all will have to do, you'll have an advocate. And that advocate will be your judge. When you stand before Him on the last day, He will say, I bore the penalty in your place. I'm your advocate. Come and dine. You belong to me. John 17, 6. Again, substitute they and them with your name. Jesus said, I have manifested, praying to the Father, I've manifested your name to those you gave me out of the world. They were yours. Dewey Doval. He's yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. John 17, 24 and 26. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given to me, that they would be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. 
And these, Alan Taylor, he knows that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Is Jesus Christ your advocate today? Don't play games. Be honest with yourself. Is Jesus Christ your advocate? Is that prayer yours today? Does your advocate from eternity past to eternity future, have you come and seen so that you can come and dine? Have you been granted spiritual sight? My prayer, my plea would be that like Nathaniel, you would come honestly, soberly, authentically, come to Christ. Be honest with Him. And if you're willing to do that, you'll have an advocate in Christ. He will not cast you out. He will not ridicule you for your sin. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. You want forgiveness, you want spiritual sight, you want peace and joy and satisfaction, even when times get tough in life in a fallen world. You want to know as you take your dying breaths that you have no reason for fear before your Creator. You come to Jesus. Make Him your advocate today. He's willing He's willing. Well, during our time together this morning, we've seen how verses 43 to 46 reveal that Jesus is the awaited one for sinners. We've seen from verses 47 and 48 that Jesus is the advocate for sinners. And as we prepare to draw our lesson to a conclusion, let's note how verses 49 and 51, 49, 50, and 51, they proclaim Jesus as the answer for sinners. I love how thoroughly just gospel center. I know it's a gospel record, but just these texts just bleed the gospel. It's beautiful. Jesus as the answer for sinners. Our greatest problem, our sin before holy God. Jesus is the solution to it all. Notice the text with me, and we'll unpack that a little bit more. Verse 49. Notice Nathaniel. He's on board now. He was doubting just a few verses earlier. Verse 49. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Man, if there's ever been a 180, if you ever wanted to see what repentance looks like in Scripture, you've got it right there. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? But, yep, he's the one, Philip. You weren't playing games. I need to move to Bethsaida and get some of that water because you saw it a little bit sooner than I did. That's a joke. Um, I don't have the best sense of humor. Verse 50, Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And Jesus said to him, truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if we draw this section to a conclusion, if we draw chapter 1 to a conclusion... The Apostle John portrays Jesus as the answer from two distinct perspectives. So Jesus is the answer, or he's the solution to sinners' greatest problem, sin before a holy God. He gives us two beautiful perspectives to consider. He gives us the perspective of Nathaniel, and then he gives us the perspective of Jesus. So we've already already noted in reading there, verse 49, any sinner who's come to believe the gospel, any sinner who has Jesus Christ as their advocate, 
their response is going to be just like Nathaniel. They're going to, they're going to say, Jesus is the Son of God. He's the King of Israel. He's the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. His perfect life, His death on the cross, His bodily resurrection from the grave three days after His crucifixion, His ascension into heaven, and His present rule and reign at the right hand of the Father, interceding for His own, that will be your testimony. That will be the foundation of your life. Nathaniel's testimony. How do I know that Jesus is the answer for my sin? How do I know that He's my advocate? How do I know that I have spiritual sight? Is your profession today Jesus King. He's the Son of God. He's my Lord and Savior. That's how you know. This was articulated by Nathaniel 2,000 years ago. If you're in Christ today, this is what you profess as well. It's what I profess as well by the grace of God. But notice the second vantage point here. I want to focus really on what Jesus says. And, and if you study this passage, okay, if you're being honest with yourself, I'm the guy preaching this morning. Kind of a, kind of a weird statement by Jesus. Talking about angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Like, what does that mean? What does that look like, right? We're going to look into that just a little bit more here. Um, Jesus promises Nathaniel, you're going to see greater things. You've believed. You've recognized who I am. You're enamored by the fact that I knew you because I saw you under the fig tree. But you think that's great, Nathaniel? Jesus saying, I'm going to show you some better things, some greater things. And in verse 51, he describes to us what he means by that. He does it in a very Jewish way. He does it in a very Old Testament-centered way. In verse 51, Jesus draws from a very prominent Old Testament vision to to really solidify and, and punctuate a powerful spiritual truth for us to consider today, particularly about how he's our solution how he's our answer for our sin. Um, Genesis 28. Genesis 28, verses 10 to 22. We're not going to read the whole text. We're not going to um, get into the weeds of that passage. But I'd, be, uh, I'd encourage you, please go and read that text after our message today. Maybe do it this afternoon. Maybe do it this week. Because what Jesus is saying in verse 51, he's assuming a working knowledge of what's found in this passage. And particularly in those verses, let me give you the summarization of what's going on here. Jacob, who would you know, ultimately be, his name would be changed to Israel, right? And we have the 12 tribes come from Jacob, and you know the story, right? Jacob is traveling through the wilderness, and he stops to rest on a long journey that he's making from Beersheba to Haran. And he, while he's resting, as we like to do when we rest, he takes a siesta, right? He takes a nap. He falls asleep. And while he's sleeping, he has this crazy vision. He has this vision of a giant ladder that connects heaven and earth. And going up and down that ladder are angels. Up and down, up and down. In verses 16 to 19 of Genesis 28, we read this. We read that when Jacob wakes up from his vision, he declares that God was in this place. In in light of that, he says God is in this place. He creates an altar, he worships God, and he renames that place Bethel, which means the dwelling place of God, or the house of God. God was here, he says. This is his dwelling place. I saw a vision. Now, what does this mean? How does this apply to what Jesus is saying? How does it apply to us? Well, notice this. Two incredible truths taken from that reference to the Old Testament. First truth. 
When Jesus tells Nathanael that he will see the heavens open and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man, what Jesus is saying, he's saying, Nathanael, you think it's great that I saw you while you were under the fig tree? That vision that Jacob had, it's about me. I'm the fulfillment of that vision. And how am I the fulfillment? Well, just as that ladder connected heaven and earth, so also is Jesus the ladder, my friends, that connects God's dwelling place in heaven with us on the earth. And if sinners like you and I want to go to heaven, we can't get there on our own. We need a bridge. We need a mediator. We need a Savior. And that's who Jesus is. He's saying, Nathaniel, you want to know how great it's going to be to follow me? Watch how I fulfill this vision throughout the course of my earthly life ministry. And then after I die, and after I ascend into heaven, when the church is being founded, you're going to see thousands of sinners. They're stuck on the earth in their sin. They're spiritually blind. They're spiritually dead. And they're going to ascend to heaven on the basis of me. On the basis of faith in my person and my work. I'm the mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5 There's one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. He's the, ga- he, he, he's the bridge to the gap. Have you ascended that ladder, my friends? Not on your own doing, but because of Christ. Has an, let's just use the picture, as it were. Because of Jesus, it, has an angel, as it were, plucked you out of the pit of hell that you're heading to in your sin? And has he ascended that ladder, you safe and sound in the arms, going to your Lord and Savior who's at the Father's right hand. Again, that's just me trying to make a a word picture or an illustration out of what Jesus is saying here. But you see the connection, I'm sure. I fulfilled this. Again, Jesus at the center of the Old Testament. And then there's this other incredible truth that I think undergirds nicely what Jesus means when he tells Nathaniel, you're going to see greater things than these, my friend. Gets back to what we talked about a few weeks ago. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us. Well, just as Bethel was God's dwelling place for Jacob in Genesis 28, in that moment, some 2,000 years ago, Nathaniel was in Bethel in the presence of Jesus. God the Son took on flesh, dwelled with man, Emmanuel, God with us, Bethel, the dwelling place of God, the house of God, fulfilled literally in his midst. He's saying, Nathaniel, you want to to know something great? Anytime you're with me, you're in the dwelling place of God. Your place with me means you're a resident in God's house in a very true sense, in a spiritual sense. And you and I, as believers, because of our faith in Christ, we have a home in God's home. We have a room, if I could use the analogy. Or, depending on what translation you use, in my Father's house are many, did you say rooms? No. In my Father's house are many mansions. It's a big house. Imagine that. That's what Jesus is saying, my friends. He's saying, you want to know the answer to your sin problem? You want to know the solution? You've got to have me as the ladder. You've got to have me as the mediator. 
You can't get to God on your own initiative. God must save you. And I'm the one. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the only name given under heaven whereby man can be saved. That's 412. Come to me. I'll give you spiritual sight. I'll give you salvation. I'll give you rest. And then also, as an additional source of encouragement, if you're, in, if you're near me, if you have a relationship with me spiritually, you have a house. Or you have a place in God's house. You have, a, you have residence in God's abode. Bethel belongs to you by faith. It's yours regardless of where you live or when you live. It's a beautiful spiritual truth for us to consider this morning. So as we draw our lesson to a conclusion on that note, Jesus has the answer for sinners. Is he your answer today? Is he your solution today? Do you know him? Have you come and seen so that you might come and die? As the Prince of Preachers said about 160 years ago. If he's not, you're at the right place. We have men, women, who'd love to counsel you from Scripture, love to pray with you, uh, would love to point you to Christ. This church home would love to have you come, worship, fellowship. We want to be a place in Edna where anyone is welcome and anyone can come to know Jesus and live for his glory in our community. So if if you uh, feel led to respond, um, uh, after the service, you can come to me or, or one of the men or even women of the church, and we'll, we'll know how to counsel you. We'll know how to, to take care of you and point you to Christ. Or even if you just need prayer, we'd love, we'd be love, um, able to do that, willing and able to do that. We'd love to, to serve you in any way that we can. So let me pray. I'll close in a word of prayer. Uh, Joanna will uh, close us in a song, I believe. Yep, she's going to close us in a song as usual, and then um, we'll be dismissed. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, Oh, that each of us would come and see you, your Son, and your Holy Spirit as infinitely worthy of our complete worship, praise, adoration, and obedience. Father, forgive us for how often we get entangled with the cares of this world. How how often we lose sight of the fact that nothing apart from you can ultimately satisfy the longings that each of us possess in the depths of our soul. We, We are fickle. We struggle with sin. Father, even those of us who know you, some of the people here have been Christians for decades, and they, like Paul in Romans 7, say, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me, Father? And we know he answers, thanks be to God. Jesus, he is my deliverance. That, I pray, is the the cry of all of our hearts today. And we thank you, Father, that in your grace you've given us your word, and you've given us this wonderful account from the Apostle John. And over the past two months, we've seen just incredible, rich pictures of the uh, divinity of Christ, of the gospel of Christ. We haven't even gotten into a single miracle yet, Father, and yet we're just enamored by who Jesus is, what he did, and how his benefits are credited to us by faith alone. Father, please, please don't make this church, don't make any of us be people or a place that's only concerned about externals. Father, saturate our minds with the beauty of Jesus, purify our hearts, bring us to the point where Jesus, you, your Holy Spirit, that the triune God is everything to us and that we are devoted to honoring you wherever you call us in this life. Father, may may our faith become ever more real as you, by your grace, carry us along through the Christian life. And Lord, if there's anyone here today 
or listening online who doesn't know you, Father. Lord, like, like with Nathaniel, I pray that they would recognize that Jesus can be their advocate they need only believe. Father, that you would just give them eyes to see the truth of the gospel, ears to hear the truth of the gospel, and a heart to believe the truth of the gospel. Lord, whatever it takes, bring them, even this day, to salvation. May, there's an unbeliever here today, Lord, would they not leave this place until they've settled with you, that they have trusted Jesus, they've received your saving love and forgiveness of sins that's only available through Christ alone. And Father, we also ask for tonight, as we, as we have our Thanksgiving fellowship meal, we pray in advance for the souls who are going to be there. I pray everyone here today would be a part of that fellowship meal. I pray for those in the community who are going to show up in advance. I pray, Lord, it would just be a sweet, encouraging time of fellowship. Father, that your love would be manifested through how we interact with one another and how we serve this community. Oh, Father, would this be a light to Jackson County. Bless us now, Father, as we close this time of worship, as we continue to sing praise to you. And Father, keep us safe now as we prepare to leave this place and return this evening. We commit all of this to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.